0: Oh, ladies and gentlemen, how unfortunate it is for me to drop two interviews instead of a regular episode. So at the same time, Swella Bravman gets fired, David Cameron comes back. Oh, oh, if only you knew what I thought about all that. In other words, public Enemies, is jug D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances, and a good, you know, past few weeks. Obviously, as I've said, um, I've dropped a couple of interviews in the past few weeks. Uh, shout out to, obviously, Taya and a, a Dr. Uh, Hajar Yazdia. And um, yeah, it's just been... You know, it's been a really solid uh, past couple of weeks, and um, you know, I I enjoyed the interviews more of the <laughs> more of what's in them than the quality. Sometimes here we are, um, but yeah, you know, I really enjoyed doing them, and uh, you know, I still enjoy doing interviews. You know, as as, as often as I can. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you have I have one more in the pipeline. Um, as I said at the start of the month, um, out of the four that I said I'd do um, three of them happening, well, two of them are already gone, one didn't happen, and one is pending, but I'm pretty confident that's going to happen as well, um, so yeah, that'll be, that'll come, that last interview will come, uh, during December, during the hiatus, um, so that'll be one of the pods, uh, to keep you going, um, as I'm on my hiatus doing my album lists and all that stuff, um, but yeah, we're getting very close to december man very very close to the hiatus and um yeah got two more episodes to go um including this one so yeah let's let's make haste let's let's get cooking it's been it's been <laughs> it's been a few a uh, few weeks in the news obviously in current affairs uh for better or worse um mainly for worse uh but yeah here we are um Excuse the voice if it sounds sudden and croaky or whatever. I've just had like a mildly consistent cough where it just comes now and just comes through now and again. It's not like a, uh, uh, you know, what I mean, I'm just coughing and spluttering, but it just comes when I'm trying to talk and like, and then it just yeah, it's just one of those weird ones. I don't know how to describe it, but it might come up in the recording. So, if I sound groggy, that's why. Uh, but anyway, 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 anyway. Let's jump right in. Screw it. Let's just jump right in. Nothing else. Nothing more to say. Nothing more to say. Interviews. Go spin that. All that stuff. You know what I mean. So you know. Nothing. Nothing more to say on my front. Hope you're all doing well, of course. Uh, In this. I mean, it's cold here, but you know, hopefully it's hot for you. Who knows? Um, But yeah. Four minutes before we begin. Email, socials, uh writing, all of that in the full show notes, as well as the music and other podcasts under the 5 epn PN. Just did a contemporary call over at DITD. Um, Get into that one if you want to talk some reggae and hear me roast um the J and Bay album Everything's Love. Um but yeah, with that said, let's beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where uh, Sean Combs settles a civil case within 24 hours of being accused of rape and severe sexual, uh, severe physical abuse, and sexual abuse, actually, um, by former girlfriend Cassie, amongst other things, and, um, yeah, just, um, I go off on it on DITD at the end of that episode that just came out, excuse me, and, um, yeah, that dude needs to be in jail, put simply, um, OpenAI, uh, CEO Sam Altman is fired, only to be picked up by Microsoft. <laughs> only picked up by Microsoft, literally uh, just as soon as that happens as well. Um, how nice! How nice to just uh, be fired and then immediately hired uh, somewhere, somewhere else. How's amazing? Can't 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 imagine. Uh, calling the gang drummer George Funky Brown dies, age ni- 74. Uh, Far right libertarian Javier Milay wins the Argentinian presidential election, looking like a Spanish-speaking Michael fucking fabricant. And lastly, happy fifth birthday to this podcast. What's good is, on this drop day, on this Thursday, as it drops, it's five years old. Can't believe it. Can't believe I've been doing this. (laughs) Oh, shit, man. That's crazy, isn't it? That's fucking nuts. Since 2018, I've been doing this. Wow anyway yeah not much to say on that just wanted to obviously shout that out I'm not making a song a dance of it but yeah it's just um I'm really I'm really proud uh, proud prideful of um doing this and you know I really enjoy it um and yeah it's just it's just good so appreciate you rocking with me if you have been uh, so yeah, where are we jumping into? Let's start with the environment. Okay, so this is actually kind of interesting because um, all of these articles um, I have been holding on to for the past like uh, for the past couple of weeks. Um, most of these came early early November. Um, so yeah, I've actually been holding on to this whole episode for a while. <laughs> Not the recording, obviously. I'm recording it a couple of days before, but um, as usual. But um. Yeah, I've had these articles for for a couple of weeks, um, so and I just you know I could have found more recent stuff, but I just feel like these are worth talking about still. And um, yeah, anyway, let's jump right to this one. So this is this is about cruise ships um, by Open Democracy via Open Democracy, written by Ben Webster and Lucas Amin. It's called "Revealed: Greenwashing Cruise Ships, Burning Diesel Despite Energy Pledge." Wow, what a surprise! Can't believe it. Can't believe private companies are skirting uh, the issue. Oh my gosh, who knew? Can't believe that. That's a, that's a completely new thing that's happened. Um, but yes, this is about how, basically, how shit cruise ships are for the environment. Um, as if we didn't need a confirmation. Uh, as if we needed a confirmation about that. But we do now, of course. So let's jump on. The cruise industry has been accused of misleading tourists with false claims that that ships use green energy with quote-unquote zero emissions while in port in the UK. Cruise companies claim the gyro vessels, which some experts believe are worse for the climate than flying, um, that's probably fact, are reducing emissions by switching off their engines and plugging into low-carbon electricity while moored. But an investigation by Open Democracy has found that cruise ships regularly fail to use the shore power available in port and instead burn diesel, which is cheaper, but has a huge carbon footprint. Uh, Data from the UK's biggest cruise port in Southampton, big up Southampton, uh, shows that only around 1 in 10 cruise ships has plugged into shore power since it became available at the port last year. Um, The data also suggests that the few ships that did use the energy plugged in for only about 5 hours per visit on average, despite typically spending 12 hours in port, cruise ships' failure to use the shore power appears to be worsening air pollution in Southampton, just 45 ships visiting the port produced almost 10 times more harmful pollutants than the city's 93,000 cars combined, causing to a study published by the Transport and Environment T&E think tank in June. T&E also found the cruise ships emit two to five times more co2 per passenger kilometer than the average commercial airplane in europe and there's actually a really good graph here in within this um where <laughs> jesus christ so literally it's just like four types of cruise ships and then commercial jets in in europe and then the average eu fleet of cars from 2001 to 2017 and then the eu stand, uh, co2 standard in 2021. Uh, for cars Uh, shore power which is available at 32 cruise ports in the world can quote reduce emissions by up to 98 percent depending on the mix of energy sources while a ship is in port according to cruise lines international association the companies are choosing not to use it in part, it co- because it costs more than tax-free marine diesel, according to the UK Chamber of Shipping, the industry trade association. John Hood, sustainable Ch- uh, shipping manager at TNE, said, "quote It's hard to believe in 2023 the cruise ships are still allowed to sit in our busy port towns, pouring poison into the air that people breathe." He continued. It's harder still to believe they're allowed to do this, even when there's clean power right available right there. But the cruise companies don't want to pay for the sake of their profits. Of course they don't. None of this is surprising to me. I'm sorry. None of this is, like, really harrowing. Oh, my gosh. Pearl Clutch. You know, it's just... It's it's kind of silly to even like say it's hard to believe. It's it's very fucking hard. To, it's very fucking easy to believe. I'm I'm, I'm I will I will uh, argue that is it is much easier to believe this than it is not to believe it. I know he's just saying that probably as a term, you know, just a turn of phrase. But seriously, come on, let's let's be real. Anyway, over democracy investigation comes as the cruise industry is expanding. Oh, good. Why is it expanding? Why do you people love cruise ships so much? I've said this before. Like, I just never, I've never understood the hype about cruise ships. I remember like watching TV as a kid, seeing cruise ships, and like, you know, as a kid, you get it. You, you see the fun in it because it's just like, oh yeah, you're in the water, you're you're in the sea, and you get to just do a bunch of cool shit like on this one thing, on this one vessel, right? But the older you get, the more just, I don't know, the more weird it seems to me. I'm just like, die. for one thing, international law. You can die and have it just be legal. Um, it's, it's just, if someone can kill you and it could be legal. Let's just say that. Um, and and all the econo- economic, it'll, it'll be environmental shit. Even, even, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I was just like, yeah, yeah, this can't be good. This can't be good in any way for the environment, can it? And la-dee-da. It's fucking not. I can't believe it. Hard to believe, right? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> I'm just gonna roast. i just gonna roast my man for no reason. <laughs> There's the cough right there. Just so you know, that's what it is. <clears throat> All right. Excuse me. Let's continue. Over the investigation comes as cruising industry expanding with more than 70 new ships. Uh, many of which can accommodate up to 7,000 passengers and staff on order globally. Some 1.7 million people in UK and Ireland holidayed on a cruise ship last year. 2021, the chief executives of of six of the world's biggest cruise lines signed a letter committing to support the development of shore power, which they said was needed, quote, to combat climate change. Carnival, the world's largest cruise company, lists shore power connection as a key environmental feature of its vessels in its 2022 sustainability report. But the industry is frequently avail- failing to use shore power when it's available. Southampton Port's owner, Associated British Ports (ABP), announced that shore power was ready for use at two its at two its five terminals, two of its five terminals. Assuming, uh, where the cruise where cruise ships can dock in April 2022, saying ships could plug in to achieve zero emissions at berth. Between then and the end of July 2023, there were more than 300 days when at least one cruise ship was berthed at Southampton, according to Over Democracy's analysis of ABP's schedule. And I will say, as a person that lived in Southampton for a few years for university, it's a very freaky first-time reaction of just going down there and just seeing this big-ass fucking ship. It's really fucking jarring how large they are. It's actually crazy how... how you even build them. I don't even know, but it's just... It... It's crazy that thing, big-ass thing, can even float in water. It doesn't make sense. Um, I need a scientist to explain that to me, but anyway. This suggests shore power could have been used 300 times over that period, even with local group constraints that mean only one ship can use shore power any one time. But in August, ABP told Upper Democracy that shore power had been used on just 71 occasions since <laughs> April 2022. It, though it refused to say exactly when these occasions were. Now, of course, God protect them somehow. Can't have accountability, of course not. And if failure to use, shore power can partly be explained by cruise lines delaying the necessary investment to upgrade their ships to be compatible with the energy source. Only 46% of cruise ships globally can connect to shore power, according to CLIA, uh, C-L-I-A, Clear. Uh, despite the first shore power port connection for cruise ships being installed more than 20 years ago. Okay cool, cool, 20 years, taking 20 years to do this shit, it's as if they, as if they don't want to do it that that much, as if they're not that motivated, or, I don't know, just not incentivized to to do so, hmm, it's weird how that works, hmm, maybe there should be, you know, just, um, I don't know, like some uh, governmental, you know, forcing of of them to do this, you know what I mean, just, uh, you know, just making it mandatory, maybe, I don't know, but, hmm, What do I know? Um, Clear says 72% of ships will be able to do so by 2028. 72%? Great, that's cool. Carnival admitted that the Iona, Ventura, and Queen Victoria, which visited Southampton 80 times between May 2022 and February 2023, were not capable of taking shore power in that period. Yeah, even cruise ships that can use the electricity regularly failed to do so in Southampton. I feel like this is getting repetitive. Um, <laughs> just, let me let me skip a little bit because uh, you know I just want to speed up. Is 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 a longer shot? it's not that long, but it's it's getting there. All right, let me get to this uh, green greenwashing side of things. Southampton Port and ABP successfully applied in 2020 for a 4.4 million public subsidy to install shore power. In its business case for the grant, which was awarded via the Solent Local Enterprise Partnership, LEP, a voluntary partnership between local authority and businesses to encourage economic growth in the area, ABP stated that cruise ships were at birth for an average of 12 hours and could plug in for 96% of the time in port. But figures published in Solent LEP's annual report suggest that the 55 ships that used shore Paris Southampton in 12 months to the end of March 23 did so for an average of only 55 five and a half hours, spending the remaining six hours in port burning fossil fuel to generate power. The cruise ship uh, consumes an average of tw- 2,700 litres of diesel an hour in port. The reports say that the 55 ships used in shore power <coughs> excuse me, to draw a total of 1.5 million kilowatt hours of energy, one large cruise ship is likely to use at least this amount of energy in less than two weeks. <laughs> This makes me want to scream, i thought man, this is absurd. Pierre Aylott, uh, Director of Policy at the UK Chamber of Shipping, told Open Democracy the current price of electricity is so high. Oh, uh, wh- wow, how did, how did that happen? Hmm? How did that happen? Let's join the dots there. Let's follow that one. Let's just follow that thread for a little bit. Why is electricity in Britain so expensive? Hmm, it's as if we've been talking about this since last fucking winter. Hmm. Anyway... Uh meant it uh no cruise company is going to use it unless they had to buy a mandatory requirement. There you go. You said it. You said it. You said it. You said it. Well done. You got there. You finally got there. We got to the crux of the issue, which I literally just said a couple of minutes ago. Make it mandatory. There you go. But they won't. Why? Because they still want the fucking business. It don't make fucking sense. Capitalism, mate, is crazy. Capitalism is fucking crazy. Um, this is pissing me off. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you can read the rest. Um, I'm going to stop there because it's just starting to piss me off and it just gives you more um, information, more numbers. Okay, I'll read this last bit. Asked how many uh, how many times a cruise ship has failed to plug in Southampton when shore power is available. The spokesperson, uh, spokesperson said, we don't collect the data. <laughs> As a spokesperson for ABP, by the way. So the 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 the, play, the people we've been, you know, referencing for the part for for the past like ten minutes. Yeah, they they don't they don't take that data. Of course they don't. Why would they? Why would they take the data? Why would they even want the data for that thing? Why would they collect data? Why collect data? The so an LEP report said Shore Power has saved. Uh, 1.7 million kilograms of CO2 in a year. There's only a 50 annual annual savings predicted by ABP in its business case submitted to the ABP uh, to obtain the 4.4 million grant. ABP said implementation always takes a while to work up as both users and providers come un- come familiar with the practice. Alright, alright, cool. So that's that's bullshit. Um, I think we can agree with that. Um, that that's that's bollocks, right? Because this this idea the this idea that they're doing it as fast as they can, don't fucking jive with me. Does never, ever fucking jive with me. Especially when it comes to a capitalistic enterprise. You can't tell me, as a capitalistic enterprise, that you are going as fast as possible to do this. It is fucking bollocks. I could have um, put in a week where, um, because um, I could have put in in a week where, that... um, uh, I think it's the well the people that are doing the host cop twenty the cop twenty eight cop twenty nine I forget what number it is now in Dubai forget about that yep did that did that on an ep- episode a few, a few months ago talking about how it's hosted in Dubai so people have to fly to Dubai a fucking desert in the UAE to talk about fucking. The environment is makes no sense, anyway. Um, but yeah, well, <laughs> I was <okay> that. <laughs> but they said that. Yeah, they said that. Um, three degrees—the um, magical three degrees that will kill us all—is um, very close to happening, basically, and um, it probably will happen. Let's be real, um, because people ain't doing shit. Um, the I can't I'm not going to believe politicians I'm not going to believe capitalistic enterprises when they talk about this shit going like oh we're going as fast as possible we're trying we're trying you fucking ain't you fucking ain't you know why because you ain't getting threatened you ain't getting threatened with to do this you're just making the pact you're, you're you know you're you're shaking you're shaking uh you're shaking everybody's hand with your fucking uh uh fingers crossed behind your back that's all you're doing it don't make fucking. It, it, it is so disingenuous, this whole thing, everything um, to do with the environment, to do with actually, you know, um, having alternative power sources, all that stuff. It is so, going so fucking incrementally. There needs to be a wholesale fucking, if there's uncomfortability, uncomfortable, uncomfortability, uncomfortabl, why can't I say that? If it's uncomfortable, then fucking so be it. This is this is everybody. This is the future of our species. We're talking about. I hate to be that guy, but we are literally talking about the future of our species. That's being selfish. If we're being unselfish, the future of the fucking planet, right? And you're ta- you're telling me that we can't do it fast enough. We're trying. You fucking ain't you fucking ain't it ain't going down like that i'm sorry i'm not believing these people you can't believe capitalistic enterprises when they talk about the environment you can't believe politicians when it comes to the environment they ain't doing it fast enough they can do it faster and they won't why i think you know So let hop into tech for the next one, and this one is about the, well it's called, The Great Social Media News Collapse. Um, so this is obviously going to mention, you know, stuff like Twitter. Um, I, the main reason why, you know, I've said it before, I'm hopping off to the end of the year. Um, for various amount of reasons. Um, but mainly just, um, you know, news there is just not as good. Um. You know, there's, there's obviously great sources here and there, um, but I don't need Twitter to to use, to go to their sources, right? Um, a great source I've found in recent months uh, for, <coughs> excuse me, especially for everything going on in Gaza, um, is East Um So shout to them for just being amazing in terms of just coverage, um, their coverage of Gaza right now is crazy, um, I don't know how they do it, uh, they just come through with great opinion pieces, um, but also just great updates, um, consistent updates, so uh, they do an update at midnight every night, um, and they continue that thread throughout the day, um, so yeah, it's just really impressive how they do that, but not every, everything's collapsing basically, right, so, and this is the argument from uh, Charlie Wazell, uh via Atlantic, uh, so it's right in. Over the past decade, Silicon Valley has learned that news is a messy, expensive, low-margin business, Uh, the kind that, if you're not careful, can turn a milquetoast CEO into an international villain and get you dragged in front of Congress. No surprise then, the big tech has decided it's done with the enterprise altogether. After the 2016 election, news became a bug rather than a feature, a burdensome responsibility of truth arbitration that no executive particularly wanted to deal with. Slowly, and then not so slowly, companies divested from news. Facebook reduces visibility in users' feeds. Both Meta and Google restricted the distribution of news content in Canada. Meta's head of Instagram, Adam Maseri noted that his new, newest social network, Threads, wouldn't go out of its way to amplify news content. Elon Musk destroyed Twitter, apparently as part of a reactionary political project against the press, and made a number of decisions that resulted in its replacement, X, being flooded with garbage. As the New York Times declared recently, quote, the major online platforms are breaking up with news. This is correct, but the narrative is missing something. Journalists tend to fixate on how our work isn't, is or isn't, being dis, uh, isn't distributed. Uh, doing so allows us to believe that algorithms and short-sighted mercurial tech executives are fully to blame when our work isn't consumed. Fair enough. Platforms, especially Facebook, have encouraged news organisations to redefine their publishing strategies in the past, including through disastrous pivots to video, only to change directions, directions with an algorithm update or the falsification of key metrics. They also allowed their platforms to be used for dangerous uh, propaganda that crowds out legitimate information. But there is also a less convenient and perhaps more existential side to text divestiture. Divestiture. Didn't realize that was a word. great, great word. Um, of news. It's not just the platforms, readers are breaking up with judicial news too. Well, we knew that. That's why I used to get my news from fucking Twitter about half the time. <laughs> now I have to go from other places. Uh, <laughs> Fuck it, let me take a drink hang about. <laughs> okay, we're back. Bloody hell. <laughs> All right, last week, the Pew Research Centre published a new study showing that few adults on average said they regularly followed the news in 2021 or 2022 than in any other year surveyed you started asking the question in 2016. There's some shakiness when you break down the demographics, but overall, 38% of American adults are following the news closely, versus a high of 52% in 2018. This tracks. In 2022, Axios compiled data from Different web traffic monitoring companies that showed news consumption took a nosedive, quote-unquote nosedive. After 2020, and despite January 6th, when Ukraine and other major, news, other major events, engagement across all news media, news sites, news apps, cable news, and social media was in decline. The struggles of legacy news organizations have no simple explanation. Trust in media has fallen sharply in the past two, 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 two decades, sorry, uh, two, 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 two decades. Especially, and especially in the past several years, though much more so among Republicans. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, some of this is self-inflicted, the results of news organizations getting stories wrong, and the fact that these mistakes are more visible, and therefore subject to both legitimate and bad faith criticism than ever before. A great deal of the blame also comes from efforts on the right to le- delegitimize mainstream media. Local news outlets have died a slow death at the hands of hedge funds. A generational shift is at play as well. Millions of younger people took to influences and creators on Instagram, especially TikTok, along with podcast hosts. Hey, gang. Big ups. Nah, you ain't getting news from me. <laughs> Don't get news from me, please. Don't let me be your only source. I'm not even a source. I'm just a do the talks, um, anyway, um, (laughs) trusted sources of news. In these contexts. uh, consumer trust is not necessarily based on the quality of reporting or the prestige and history of the brand, but on strong parasocial relationships. You can see how public opinion has shifted in surveys covering the 2010s. In 2014, squarely in the halcyon days of social news, 75% of adults surveyed by Pew said that the internet and social media helped them feel more informed about national news. But by 2020, the conventional wisdom has shifted. That year, a Pew survey of more than 10,000 people found uh, that, quote, U.S. adults who mainly get their political news through social media tend to be less engaged with news, unquote, and notably less knowledgeable about current events and politics. Perhaps the best way to understand, uh, uh, understand this is by considering the effects that online news and social platforms have on each other, in the fall of 2013, while working at BuzzFeed News, my colleagues and I noticed that almost overnight, Facebook had turned a uh, fire hose on traffic to news stories on the site, and it wasn't just us. According to data I obtained at the time, in the span of three months, a subtle tweak of Facebook's newsfeed algorithm resulted in more than 200 different news organizations becoming much more visible on the platform. For the next few years, publishers chased the high. More people clicking on their links meant more ads served, which in turn meant healthier business businesses. Organizations adopted social media strategies designed to promote and package stories in ways that were algorithmically uh, pleasing and easily digestible to people casually scrolling on their phones. These uh, these years saw a proliferation of clickbait and upworthy style curiosity gap headlines. headlines. Some of these strategies were cynical attempts at quote-unquote going viral, but most were earnest attempts to reach people through the immense distribution offered by major social networks news cycles became much quicker, and although uh, social media allowed new voices to enter the conversation, the centrality of these platforms also created a herding effect around coverage. News would be reported, takes would be published about that news, and all of it was distributed through social networks, where journalists could easily track metrics to see what was performing well and then tweak their coverage accordingly. Twitter in particular became a de facto assignment editor for newsrooms, which kicked off races between publications that bestowed outsized importance on niche online drama. The platform helped turn certain journalists into online influences and micro-celebrities and brought some of the news-gathering process into the open. But by humanizing journalists, these platforms also opened them up to attacks and harassment. Traditional news news organizations encouraged their reporters to use social media, to promote their work, but bristled when those same reports aired personal opinions. In politics, a strange cyclical relationship emerged. Social media algorithms designed for viral advertising and engagement gave a natural advantage to the most shameless politicians, none more so than Donald Trump, whose every utterance conjured up the kind of divisive engagement perfectly tailored to trend across platforms. Trump's prominence across social media didn't just help him win fans or raise money, it also justified more media coverage. Even now, his posts on True Social are covered as news events. By the logic of social media, Trump's popularity made him newsworthy, which, in turn, made him more popular, which then made him more newsworthy. From 2013 to 2017, news content was arguably the grist for the social media mill. Uh, Political news did numbers on the platforms, which created a new kind of toxic political engagement. Massive hyper-partisan Facebook pages sharing aggregated news stories designed to provoke users became, for a moment, some of the most influential media services on the planet. At some point, an argumentative, trollish style of posting became the default language of social media. Throughout the 2010s, activists, journalists, propagandists, politicos, Uh, White nationalists and conspiracy theorists have converged in these spaces and the platforms curdled into battlegrounds where news stories were the primary ammunition. As the researcher Michael Caulfield has written, a tragic mass shooting or even just a story about a submarine disaster became evidence to fit an ideological position, uh, a way to attack an enemy. Its toxicity made public spaces hostile to reasonable discourse and marginalised audiences. Consuming news might have might always have exacted an emotional toll but by 2020 the experience of picking through the wreckage of social media to find out about the world was particularly awful it's telling that the, during the darkest days of the coronavirus pandemic the very act of reading the news was rebranded as doom scrolling <laughs> and people have long called twitter a hell site it's no wonder that the people and platforms started opting out of news the experience was miserable Likewise, it makes sense that some of the decisions to deprioritize algorithmic news curation were seen by users as a positive change. A recent Morning Consult survey found that people like Facebook now uh, now that it's less newsy. Interesting. Still ain't never getting on that fucking app ever again. It would be wrong to suggest that news, and especially commentary about the news, will vanish. But the future might very well look like silvers of the present slivers of the present, sorry, where individual influences command large audiences and social networking and text based media take back take a backseat to video platforms with recommendation forward algorithms, like TikToks. This seems likely to coincide with news organizations' continued loss of cultural power and influence. Uh, In a recent New York essay, uh, John Herman suggested that the 2024 presidential campaign might be, quote, the first modern election in the United States without a minimum viable media to shape broad political narratives. This might not be a bad development, but it's likely to be, at the very least, disorientating and powered by ever more opaque algorithms. And although it is obviously self-serving of me to suggest that the decline in traditional media might have corrosive effects on journalism, our understanding of the world and public discourse is worth uh worth noting that a creative economy approach to news shifts trust from new, new organizations with standards and practices to individuals with their own sets of incentives and influences. Should this era of information free for all come about, there will be an element of tragedy, or at the very least irony, to its birth. The frictionless access and prodigious distribution of social media should have been a, p- a perfect partner for news—the very type of relationship that might bolster trust in institutions and cultivate a durable shared reality. None of that came to pass. Social media brought out the worst in the news business, and news, in turn, brought out the worst in a lot of social media. Wow, well, that was a lot. Um, and <laughs> it's just—it's um, a weird—it's a weird dynamic, right? Um, that people just saw news and they were just like, um, "Yeah, it's too much, too much news." Yeah, this, this is doom scrolling now, and this is just everything negative. Like news is inherently inherently searches for the negative. I feel you know, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of those um you know stories that you can look up for yourself of just like, "Oh yeah, this is cool." Of just you know, shit getting um, oh look at this puppy that um did this thing. It's like you know, people people like looking at puppies, don't get me wrong, but you know, past that it's just uh it's it's just it. It's not it's not it's not quote unquote newsworthy. Obviously, you know, the more negative shit is quote unquote newsworthy. Um and, you know, most of it is valid but then there's also shit like, you know, um and it's more it's more about, I guess, covering stuff that, you know, I guess are worthy but you just, for me, it gets to the point of like, why are we still talking about this? You know what I mean? It's like when you when you see um when I see anything about you know trans issues, right? And people are just um, it's just like, oh, this person doesn't like trans people. It's just like, <sighs> you just it just makes you want to sigh, right? Because this shouldn't be this shouldn't be it. <laughs> this shouldn't be what we're talking about. This shouldn't be what the discourse is right now. Um, but here we are, that's the discourse, and it's just, I don't know, it's just shit, it's just, it's just garbage, um, but, you know, there are, there are some good places, and, um, I just feel like, in the same way, I guess, with a lot of things, when it, you know, comes to the arts, for example, um, music, film, TV, right, because there's so much of it, there's so much of everything now, Um, same way as the news, there's so much potential for news, quote unquote, right? Um, and outlets, there's so many more outlets, there's individual outlets now, right? Um, like, people on Substack, people on Medium, like me, right? (laughs) It's this, it's a, and I don't do news, obviously, I just, you know, provide the occasional take and end of year lists, um, but, you know, people go to certain people for certain commentary, and that's fine. Um, but because in the same way as there's a ton of music out there now, there's a ton of films out there now, there's a ton of TV shows out there now, there's more of everything, you just have to decide for yourself what you want, and in turn, decide for yourself what you think is important. Um, and some people think trans issues is important. <laughs> you know, I mean, trans rights is important, obviously, but I mean, the coverage of you know people not liking trans people is not is not worthy, in my opinion, um, so that's why I don't read about it, um, but maybe I should in some way, right, because, you know, people are getting killed in that front, people are getting, um, uh, marginalized, and all that stuff, and just, um, you know, hate crimes in general, right, it's on the up in a lot of ways, obviously, with, uh, Gaza and Israel going on, there's a lot of Islamophobia, there's a lot of anti-Semitism about, and there's a lot of just, uh, people trying to Combat the two, and for some reason put them up against each other. It's just like, oh yeah, but what about anti-Semitism? It's like, yes, anti-Semitism is also bad, as is Islamophobia. We can both agree that is both that they're both bad. then why are you trying to put them up against each other? Um, but anyway, let's just get into another thing. So, yeah, you know, there's just more of everything, and if you want something. I feel you have to go find it now. And that's just all you have to... That's just all I feel you have to do in life. It doesn't have to be... um, If you don't want to... If you don't want to experience news... Don't experience news. It is what it is. You know, you can... Sometimes it can make you depressed... And feels like it's doom scrolling. And that's fine. Protect your energy. I'm not going to tell everyone to... You must consume two hours of news every day. So that's not... It's not that deep. Um, But... It's obviously worth to be um, knowledgeable about the world around you, um, so, yeah, anyway, that's was a word salad a bit, but, <laughs> hopefully you got something about like that. right, this is a quick one um, relating to politics, and uh, it's called The Empathy Gap and a Politics of Extremes, uh, written by Ian Overton uh, via Byline Times. Uh, Shout out to Byline Times for, you know, we were talking about, you know, the news before. You know, they're they're producing papers now. They're producing physical papers. They have been for a while now, but they've now expanded into shops. They're in WH Smiths. uh, I think they're going into Sainsbury's now. Um, So, yeah, man, if if you're in, 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 in any of those spots... Bit, uh, go pick up a copy of *Byline Times*, man. Just um, you know, support support some real independent journalism that you know isn't Murdoch-owned, <laughs> basically. Um, but yeah, let's jump right into this one. Uh, it's a nice short one, nice quick one. <coughs> Whatever you think of politicians, shit, um, they have a crucial, albeit often understated role in British life. I don't think it's understated. I think I stay very, you know, for me personally, I stay. Fairly regularly that they're um, that they're um, you know very into in our lives um, uh, and whether we like it or not, they frame the ideas of who and what uh, we are to care about. Such framing, aligned with and often in step with the editorial obsessions of dominant media, creates what might be called the quote majority moral conscience of a nation. Hmm. The role of religion has been, to a large extent. Uh, handed over to such politicians who act as a sort of litmus test for our notions of good and evil, right and wrong. The right-wing political classes, spurred on by an inevitable headline in the Daily Mail, tells us that migrants are a source of concern. Their bully dogs are too. They're addressing vaping or drugs or lefty lawyers will address society's failures. This is exactly what we are talking about in the previous previous article. I think there's a good link, actually. Uh, Such critique is, of course, never about their own shortcomings, always the fault of the other. Many see through this. This month, research by King's College London and Ipsos UK found that almost two-thirds of Brits believe our politicians use culture wars to distract from other issues. Uh, but yet, how many of those two-thirds are going to vote for Tories? That's all I'm asking. Uh, to distract from other issues, with 62% of those poll claiming that politicians quote, invent or exaggerate, unquote, culture wars as a political ploy. This is up from 44% th- some three years ago. In recent weeks, this enforcing, uh, enforced framing of what is good and what is not good has been tested to its limits. The violence unfolded in Israel and Gaza has led to polarization and woe betide politicians uh, who seek nuance. Uh, Conservative MP Paul Bristow was sacked from his government uh, post after calling for a Gaza ceasefire. Labour MP Andy MacDonald had the whip suspended after saying the controversial phrase between the river and the sea, a pro-Palestine-Palestinian uh, rally, as if you are unable to believe that the massacre of Israeli citizens by Hamas and the subsequent murder- murderous in Barton and Gaza are both terrible events. Such a lack of consideration was there when Suyla Breverman, uh, accused of hundreds and thousands of people marching over Gaza of of acts of hate, Uh, it was there in the government's attempts to criminalise, detain and deport asylum seekers, and it is there in its condemnation of international human rights treaties. At the root of this dualistic framing, uh, the distillation of complex issues to the singular poles of friend or foe, lies in an erosion of the most complex of political emotions, empathy. This has revealed itself in the COVID inquiry, where it emerged that Downing Street colleagues called each other morons and cunts, or in Boris Johnson, allegedly thinking that old people should accept their fate in the pandemic. In the end, it is a deficit that impacts us all. Last year, former Conservative peer Patience Wheatcroft uh, observed in The Guardian that, quote, you don't have to be a socialist to find UK levels of poverty intolerable, but this trust lacks the empathy to see it. As Warcro- uh, Wheatcroft noted, Trust, another quote, misread the public mood as well as the markets, unquote. The consequences of an empathy deficit are arguably still being felt today as the Bank of England maintains rates at a painful high for many homeowners. But still, the former Prime Minister defends her actions. This failure of Britain's uh, elites to properly accept their failings is widespread. Analysis of Hansard. Hansard, yeah, I guess so. Um, shows that the word sorry across the floor of House of Commons has dwindled <laughs> to its lowest level since 2000. <laughs> Even when, <laughs> when it is uttered, that's just a funny thing to track. I don't know why. Uh, how many times they say sorry in House of Commons? Fuck all, apparently. Even when it is uttered, as in the case of former Health so- uh, Social Care Secretary Matt Hancock's apology to the COVID inquiry, the sincerity is often justified. Be questioned. In the end, empathy to be of any meaning needs to be bolstered by willingness to accept one's failures. The inability to do so, in the end, impacts the heart of democracy. Many disenchanted with the un- unempathetic political landscape are distancing themselves altogether from the news. There you go. Nearly 4 in 10 adult Brits are reportedly avoiding the news, a ratio that increases the younger they get. Uh, rising inflation, more in Europe, climbing food and rent prices, and the looming threat of climate change have endangered feelings, of engendered feelings of alienation. So what do what so what to do about this? Mariam Cabber's wisdom in her book We Do This Till We Free Us offers a Path. Do not fixate on this spectacular event, she says. Do not put it higher than the point of origin. Uh, instead of aligning uncompromisingly uh, with a singular position, focus instead on addressing foundational problems and seek to understand what led to the problem in the first place. Oh I was such a fucking bar. Do you understand how many times I have said that over the years? I've said that so many times over the years. Don't focus on, like, the headline, right? Focus on the reason why. So, when you have riots, quote-unquote, right, why is that happening? Is it literally just because teenagers want to want to steal some shit? No. I think we can agree it's not just because teenagers want to rob some shit. Duh, right? Where's that anger coming from? Get to the fucking root of the issue, but that is the issue. That is that's the issue. Pete, politicians, media, mainstream media especially, don't want to get to the root of the issue. They never get down to the root of the issue, they never do it, and that's what that's what we always miss in, in any of these conversations. We just never get that. <sighs> Gosh, that's such a, such a bar. I love that paragraph, it's so great. Anyway, we should reconsider empathy. Um, while well, not the sole driver, as one of the most uh, significant components to achieve such a moral and political view. its increase in absence in the British political arena is not just problematic, but detrimental to the body politic. As we face this age of extremes, the need for empathetic leadership seems more pressing than ever. We should consider this when gauging who we, who we want to lead us, those who can bait the crowd, or those who understand what causes the crowd to be so easily driven to anger." And that's it. That's it, man. That's it. And that's why. That's why I, I don't have any confidence in like Kier Starmer at all, like and, and and shit like that. Because that dude just he does he doesn't show empathy. If you were empathetic, you'd be saying ceasefire, fucking now. But no, you want to do that. I want a humanitarian pause. And like, what the fuck is humanitarian pause? Just say a fucking ceasefire. We know, just don't, stop wording it differently. Don't fucking, it shouldn't fucking matter. But everybody gets in a fucking hissy fit when people say ceasefire. It doesn't make it, you get, people get more pissed off with the fact people say, politicians say ceasefire um, than actually, you know, babies dying. It, it's, just, it's, it's so fucking silly. And the lack of empathy in, 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 the body politic and also media is just um very very upsetting um that, <laughs> that they just don't want to have that they don't want they just completely purged out of themselves and it doesn't it, it doesn't serve us any good it doesn't serve us any good regardless if people um if the majority of the UK want a ceasefire doesn't matter doesn't matter tories got an agenda boys tories got an agenda and they're going to fulfill that fucking agenda um, come hell or high war. Um, So yeah, it's just um, yeah, em- empathy is is lacked is has always been lacked um, in in human uh, history. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where you know we have the language now to quote Taya <laughs> from last uh, from the uh, last interview. Um, but but we just choose not. Uh, some people just choose not to use it. They choose not to acknowledge it. They know what empathy is, they know what they, we, we know what we mean by having a ceasefire, right? But they but politicians see ceasefire, and they're like, oh no, that means you want Israel to fucking burn to the ground. It's like, what? Wait, what, what, what? Why are you jumping to that conclusion? We want people to not die, that's it. We just don't want people to die over this shit. That's, that's all it is simple as that it has, it's nothing more nothing less you don't want people to die right after that we'll get to we'll get to the root of the issue how about that how about realizing that a country that was that had a, in, in an indigenous popula, uh, population were basically told hey um we're gonna cut your um, we're going to cut your uh your, your your territory your your area um by you know sixty whatever percent, right, I'm just taking it, I'm throwing out, throwing out a number there, I forgot what the number is, but yeah, let's just, let's just dramatically cut off, um, your land, um, and give it to this, uh, and give it to these people, um, that, you know, weren't indigenous, and, uh, yeah, you know, hope you're fine with that, <laughs> it's just, and you expect them not to be, not to feel some type of way, that's the root of the issue, but again, They don't want to get to the root. They don't want to get to that empathy. They don't want to even recognize the empathy of the current state. And that's just, that's what's the most sad about it. That is what's most, that is what is the most sad about this. And I don't see it happening when it comes to Keir Starmer. I don't see when it happens, I don't see that happening when it comes to the likes of David Lammy. um, And any of the, just the uh, Labour MPs that have just kept their fucking lips shut um, over this shit. It doesn't, it's. It's a bad look. Optics, right? It's all about fucking optics, but they choose to look like fucking uh, demons amongst amongst their voting public just because they want to appease Israel. Don't make fucking sense. It doesn't make sense. finish up the film and this is a topic that I broached briefly um, a few episodes ago um, and it's about uh, killers of flower moon um, and this is literally the topic I was talking about before so you know I have um, if you want to want my thoughts on it put simply if you didn't listen last time I talked about it um, I don't believe um, that my school says you should have been the person to do this film um, that's that's pretty much it, that's, um, he's not Osage, if you want to tell an Osage story, I believe an Osage should tell the story, um, in the same way, I believe, you know, many people, um, of certain, especially of, um, you know, indigenous people, of marginalized people, fuck yeah, they should be able to tell their own story, not, you know, one of the most prolific directors ever, um, while I get it, and it might be a good film. I haven't seen it. I'm not planned to see it um it doesn't see, it's not doesn't look like my cup of tea to be completely honest with you um partly because of that reason um it's it's seen through a white lens. You can't change that. you can be as funny enough. you can be as empathetic as you want. It's still gonna be through a white for a white guy's lens, and that's not what I'm looking for in in the arts anymore. I'm not looking for that uh, there are people that can do this. Um, there are people that can do these, that can tell their own stories and they have the knowledge and they have the means. Um, it's not just, you know, white people that can make films anymore. A lot of people, a lot of people can make films now. Um, but they just, they just don't find the, they don't find those people. They don't find that talent. They don't want to. Um, they just rather get Scorsese to do it because they'll get bums on seats. Um, but anyway, it's an article uh, via Jason Asenap, um, who, I'll read his bio here, via Vox, um, is uh, a Comanche, Muskogee, 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 Muskogee Muscogee, writer, and a filmmaker based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, he is an award-winning Indigenous Film Critic, receiving top awards from the Native American Journalist Association in 2020 and 22. Um, so yeah, pretty good, um, pretty good person to talk about this. Um, see, an nice Osage Talking about an Osage story! Haha! See how important this seems? Anyway, (coughs) it's called *Killers of Flower Moon, and who gets to tell an Osage story? Um, So let's jump right in. Growing up, uh, Walanna Quetan never talked about the reign of terror with outsiders. As a young girl, Quetan learned about the protracted (coughs) murder spree, which saw the deaths of more than 60 Osage natives between 1918 and 1931. But she says the murders were, quote, only talked about amongst your immediate family never was talked about outside of those circles, unquote. Now in 2023, the story is being told on the widest stage possible with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Quentin is one of the many Osage citizens who worked as an extra on Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie raises questions about who can tell a story like this, but that doesn't mean it's equipped to answer them. I can imagine for Osage people, it must feel good to have their story on film. I can imagine if someone were to make a movie about my great-great-grandfather, Quanar Parker, uh, if I'm saying these names, apologies, I'm saying them wrong, uh, a well-known, I'm just wording them how I see them, a well-known warrior and leader of one of my tribes, the Comanches. that I'd be at least interested uh, in seeing how that story is portrayed. I could understand how one might want the story to come out simply because it hadn't been acknowledged for far too long. But I'd be interested too in who was telling that story. As an Indigenous writer and filmmaker, I'd rather be the one to make it. In a time when Indigenous film and TV exists, when a show like Reservation Dogs flourishes, when the template of Indigenous creation and excellence has been achieved, the question I ask is, why do we need another writer-director from outside our communities to tell our stories yet again? My Scorsese has tried in seemingly every way to make Killers of the Flower Moon as sincerely and correctly as possible. He's employed Osage people to work behind the scenes and consulted with them to ensure sensitivity and authenticity. He's gone as far as to rework his original script to make amends for the lack of Osage centeredness. Sitting in a Santa Fe, New Mexico cinema on Friday afternoon, I watched as Sorski Scorsese on screen earnestly introduce his latest film and wondered how far that intention would take us. I was surrounded by elderly Anglo cineasts? How do you say that? That's a weird word. Um, S-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E-S. Cineists? Cineists? Yeah, I guess a so. Weird one. Uh, as the film progressed, I heard crying from the crowd, the blowing of noses, the shock me, of how brutally humans can treat one another. How in this case the white interlopers treat the Osage. In the dark of the cinema, I heard the disgust of these descendants of colonialism angry at their own ancestors. But what would happen later? Would they go home to a large fancy Santa Fe houses, acquired through years of generational wealth? <laughs> After they... <laughs> <laughs> See, that coffin fit happens. After they... <laughs> it's when I feel like laughing. <laughs> oh, so great. After they finish decrying... Uh, decreeing, decrying... Decrying? I say. America's horrible past. Would they drain their glasses of Pinot Noir and just move on? Would they remember the whole thing as a Martin Scorsese movie starring Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio? and let the particulars of Osage, uh, genocide, and generational pain fall from their minds. Killers of the Flower Moon, the story of how white people murdered Osages in the 1920s for their oil-rich lands, adapted from David Grant's book, means well. The performances are great, which is to be expected when you have such a standout cast. Lily Gladstone uh, continues her phenomenal year after pivotal role in Reservation Dogs, and as the lead in the independent films uh, Fancy Dance and The Unknown Country. Garrett conveys a quiet grace as Molly Burkhart, uh, the heart and soul of the film who slowly fades away, literally and figuratively. By the third act, she is mostly sweating, vomiting and dying, a figure without agency as the white people manoeuvre around her doing terrible deeds. DiCaprio brings a yeoman-like quality to his performance as Ernest Burkhart, the man who arrives in Osage ca- uh, country with designs on acquiring the abundant wealth it holds, He grunts, furrows his brow and and plays Burkhart, a man whose oft-repeated refrain is, I love money, as simply as needed. De Niro is so adept at playing crooks at this point in his long and incredible career that one need not be surprised at how well he settles into the role of Burkhart's uncle, the self-proclaimed king of the Osage Hills, William Hale. When Jesse Plemons arrives on screen as Bureau of Investigation Agent Tom White, it's refreshing. He has a face that can be so blank you can project just about any type of emotion into it. But by the time we see him, there has been so much death and betrayal of the Osage people that his very existence is a welcome respite. Osage citizen, citizen Susan Shannon uh, remembers shooting her background scenes in June of 2021 in Paul Husker, Oklahoma. Quote, it was just fascinating to see big time movie making. It transformed our little town cameras and cranes. Unquote. Like Willana Quetton, she remembers being told as a kid not to disclose too much to outsiders about the Osage murders for all her oil profits, known as headrights. Born in 54, she was closer to the Osage murders in Quetin, and her family was guarded about the topic, more out of fear for their lives than anything else. Shannon recalls talking with visitors to the Osage Museum, where she worked before retiring, discussing Osage history with visitors. Quote, it is funny that you talk about these things and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed. uh, She wasn't a fan of Grant's book at first. I didn't care for how how it was written. It's written by a white man from a white man's point of view, unquote. She does, however, recognise the amount of research Grant put into the book. I had to respect that. This is going to hit women differently, Quentin told me. It has to do with trauma to women, Osage women specifically. The subject matter was familiar to Osage people, of course, but how to discuss the murders has never been agreed upon. It was a very taboo thing to discuss. It's never been discussed uh, as a community outside of your family. It is very strange that this is being exposed. It's a very strange feeling. Quentin believes that it is a step in a positive direction. I do think the wounds are going to be exposed, that historical trauma. She says, I think it's a good thing for other native people too, not just us. After seeing the film, Quentin recalls wailing unexpectedly from all the unprocessed trauma, years of pent-up sadness overwhelming her. Killers of the Flower Moon is a long film, too long really, clocking it just slightly under three and a half hours, mostly because it has a lot to say, but also maybe because there's too much to say. Perhaps it's so long because <laughs> these are not the people who should be saying it. There you go, get to the point. <laughs> of say is he uh, truly tried, but the reality is, this is yet another film about indigenous people, in the case of Osage, ran and directed by white people, and adapted from a book written by a white man. His attempts to reframe the story are admirable, but the creators of the film can only censor Osages so much, they themselves not being Osage. Bes- besides that, School says he has always been drawn to gangsters and gangsterism. There's nothing wrong with that. However, there are, they are the main perpetrators of the carnage in Osage County. Uh, cu- yeah, county. It said country before, got tripped up. And while respect is being paid to the Osage in telling the story, it doesn't feel like enough. It feels as though the individuals and their deaths are used to serve the story as a way to get DiCaprio to the next scene. After watching Killers, it seems if evident to me that non-Indigenous writers and directors making films about Indigenous people are still primarily interested in our past, in our horrors, in our grieving, in our trauma, in perhaps the collective need to mourn. When I say collective, though, I wonder if it's more of a need for them than us. I wonder why we can't do this on our own terms and make films about our own histories. Perhaps after we create more cool genre films, see Blood Quantum and Night Raiders, and build toward a better cinematic infrastructure, we could get the chance to tell these stories ourselves. Why well, can't white people stay out of it and let us as indigenous people work up to uh, work up to this on our own timeline? Spoiler alert, it's the money. We don't have it, they do. There you go. Osage artist and graphic designer Addie Rowanhorse uh, had a number of roles in the making of the film, including as film ambassador for the Osage Nation, and then in the art, props and costume department. She was eventually offered an acting part in the film but turned it down. An artist herself, Rowan Horse, had already committed to the art department and wanted to keep her word. She was then asked to design a number of gorgeous film posters for Killers of the Flower Moon. The project has been a blessing of opportunities for Rowan Horse but it is also a mixed bag of feelings for her. She went into the process thinking she was fine, she was good, quote, and then just, and then it just these emotions just kept hitting me. It's like, I'm so happy, but I'm so gut-wrenched too. Just like, you feel so raw right now, unquote. She has gone on to work more sets since Killers Wrapped. She's found a place in the film industry and more opportunities, but it came at a cost. Near the end of the film, Scorsese inserts himself. It's as if he's trying his hardest, his damnedest, to shape the film and story as best he can into something, in case you didn't uh, catch his sincerity the first time around. It's impossible, though, because he's not of the people the film is reportedly about many have praised the penultimate scene in the film I thought it was an exercise in buffoonery one that changes the tone of the film considerably and leaves me thinking I simply must have missed something in the three hours and 26 minutes of the story where this would have made sense but I don't think so I'll have to watch it again. he, says he wants us to know he did the work and basically that's true and that's basically true you can do all of that though you can do all of the things get all the permissions have the best intentions tell as much story as you possibly can but in the end you still have to make a good film. And besides making a good film, there remains a group of people who must process their emotions and work through what Killers in a Flower Movie means to them. People like Addie Roanhorse. Quote, "It's finding out, so after working on the film for seven years, getting to this point, I don't really know how to feel. I've been circling my house a little bit, just processing. Awkward. <sighs> ah, boy. Yeah, it's, um... Yeah, I've, I've you know, I've, I've said what I said before, and, um, you know... I agree what was said in the article as well. It's just um, you know, just, if you want to give them the money, do it. But you're not going to do that, are you? You're not. They're not going to give Osage people the money to actually do what they want in terms of the story, um, and let them tell their own story. Of course, you. Pff, why would you do that? Why would you give them? Why would you give people that you don't know money? Why? Why the Why on earth would you do that? You know, and um. This is the issue. This is the issue with Hollywood. This is the issue with um just you know western filmmaking um in this in America and Europe, I'm sure in Canada as well, you know just these predominantly white spaces where you know you can have these great black stories, these great indigenous stories, all of this stuff. You can have you can have as many as you want. Um this this is not Green Book. I'll say that credit to you, Mike Scorsese uh, as a person that hasn't watched it yet. Um, this seems like it is has it is in more good faith than something like Green Book, which was just abhorrent and shouldn't have been made. Um, from a, especially from a storytelling perspective, that was just absurd, right? But but there's still that big, big, big issue just sitting right there in the middle of the whole film. A white guy made this, and it just doesn't that just does not fly with me. It's 2023, about to be 24. It shouldn't be flying anymore. Oh, that's a bar. I'm going to leave it right there. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a rhyme. <laughs> on the rhyme. podcast <laughs> Oh, sorry like to cough. Um, I have a chai-to <laughs> in his face. Inja music was too much by Vanilla. Uh, thanks to your music for a bit of use. Uh, you can find those things for show notes, as well as Nappy High. Uh, thanks, Nappy High, for the charismatic interlude. You can also find his links for shows. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same, but until the next time, for the final time next week of the year, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.